Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. The episode you're about to hear was recorded over two weeks ago when we are not yet affected by the coronavirus. We recommend that you join us in self-quarantine now and catch up with The Invisible Man when it becomes available on video. Thank you. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Keith Phipps. And Scott Tobias. Our producer, Genevieve Kosky, is taking a restorative health break at a local facility after claiming her beloved dog, Hugo, was invisible and was haunting her. We're pretty sure that's not true. In our last episode, we looked back to 1944 and the Oscar-winning stage-derived drama Gaslight about a husband trying to drive his new wife insane so he can search her house for the jewels he couldn't find when he murdered her aunt. This week, we're comparing it to the modern horror The Invisible Man about a controlling, abusive husband trying to drive his wife insane as punishment for leaving him. It's a Blumhouse horror film, so of course there has to be a gimmick, and in this case, it's that the husband is a pioneering inventor in the field of optics, and he's created a suit that lets him haunt her invisibly. Everyone else thinks he's dead, but the audience knows he's manipulating her environment, assaulting her protectors, and setting her up for life in asylum, assuming she even survives. But a couple of late film twists pushes plans in a new direction. None of this has much to do with H.G. Wells' original 1897 novel Invisible Man, or with the various other film adaptations of it over the years. But the new Invisible Man does feel particularly of the moment, since it's a horror film about stalking, where wealth seems to make all the difference in establishing a man's credibility and freedom from investigation. And it certainly feels like a match for Gaslight, with just as much malice and manipulation, and just as much emphasis played on a central female role that has to hold the story together. We'll get right into it right after this break. I'm scared. You don't have to be scared of him anymore. He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone sitting in that chair. I found something that can prove what I'm experiencing. You need help. Adrian is dead. I went to his house today. He's not dead. I have a pile of ashes in the box that would disagree with you. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Only thing more brilliant. And inventing something that makes you invisible is coming up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. Adrian's true genius was how he got in people's heads. Don't come any closer. Hey! I'm not crazy. Please listen to me. You're saying the person trying to kill you is in the room right now, but we can't see him? Where are you? Where are you? Show yourself! Come on! Do it! There you are. All right. What did we think of The Invisible Man? Keith, I'm looking at you. You're looking at... Uh, uh, oh, 
You're looking at me. I'm looking at you because Scott and I talked a lot in the last segment, and yeah. uh, I want to I want to give you first crack at this Invisible Man fella. I was terrific. It's kind of the movie I was hoping I'd see from the trailer, where it's like, oh, they really are taking this in a, in a kind of a you know, very much of the moment, tapping into discussions of sexual inequality and victimization and and all this and did it in a really effective way. But it's also just a very scary movie. I mean, uh, 1L has evolved into a just really accomplished stylist uh, and he's really comfortable just letting empty space and like a crackling soundtrack do a lot of the work in this movie. I mean, it is there, you know, you get your floating knives and you get your classic uh, someone wrestling with an invisible foe uh, moments, but a lot of it's just like, is he there? We think he, I think he's there, you know, and you're kind of in the position of the protagonist at that point. I thought it was, it was very effective. Yeah, I was, I really enjoyed it too. And, and it's a film that really puts you on the line right from the very beginning because uh, you're entering into this extended scene sequence brilliantly directed that just appears to be a much more garden variety scene of domestic abuse and a woman trying to leave her husband and it being this terrifying ordeal for her to make it happen and that that has to do not at all with invisibility that just kind of tells us where we're at you know to start the story so that was ingenious and kind of reinforced this big conceptual change from what we know the invisible man story to be you know we we, we all we've always experienced it from his perspective and in fact i came into this film thinking like why would you not want to tell it from his perspective? yeah it really kind of cracks like, kind of like i love you know I, that the universal version is fantastic it opens up all sorts of possibilities in terms of voyeurism and madness and you know and just that it's so fascinating to consider how humans might react morally to being in a position where they're not accountable to anybody, where they literally can't look themselves in the mirror and so they don't have anything to account for. And so right away, this invisible man got me to think, okay, I can see it from this other angle. And then from there, you know, once she's trying to get her bearings in a different place and is terrorized by this presence that nobody else can see, that she can't see, yeah, it all came to life for me. I thought this was, you know, it's a film that has some some flaws in terms of the writing. There's some bits of horror logic that are hard to parse, but as a work of direction and, and conception and as a performance by Elizabeth Moss, very strong, I thought. What do you think? Uh, I, those bits of horror logic definitely bugged me. I think to, <laughs> to yeah. make this film work, you really have to assume that a really rich man in America can get away with literally anything. Um, there's especially like in the last act, there's a lot of, would the police not ask any questions about that at all? And there's, uh, there's other stuff that bothers me. Like the it, one, the one that bothered me the most was that her sister would be so convinced by one email, you know, although there was a the relationship not around good from the beginning. Yeah, it's con- there's conditions around it, but still. Yeah. It was a little problematic. Uh, the, the central thing that bothered me was his house is basically in mothballs after his supposed death. And part of that mothballing is his dog. <laughs> yeah. They just well, leave the dog in storage in the abandoned fine. house where nobody, <laughs> nobody yeah. lives. It's a very resourceful dog. I, yeah, the, I, we don't see a whole lot of resourcefulness from that dog. The thing that, was the dog being okay was like, oh gosh, someone's in this, like someone's been around, you know. I mean, that someone's taking care of this animal. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. And, th- and then that raises expectations that the film doesn't just like, deliver on. Yeah, it, it raises just a whole bunch of uh, okay. So, what is meant to be the story here? Is the story here meant to be that his brother is taking care of the dog but leaving the dog at the house? Is the story meant to be that 
you know, he's still living there. Like, what are we meant to assume? Can, but, you, sw- can you swing by and take care of the dog? Uh, which in my house, that is <laughs> that is as far from humanity as possible. <laughs> yeah, the, the house that is apparently a million miles out into the woods. Well, to your first point, though, I, I, basically it's a movie in which what if the bad guy was Tony Stark? Well, like, you know, think about all the, everything Tony Stark can get away with. I think, you know, I, I, I bought that he could really kind of kind of weasel his way around. Oh, I'm being a little facetious when I say you have to imagine that a rich man in America can get away with anything. <laughs> like, I, I really did, like, kind of spackle over a lot of my bigger questions about this film with, yeah, well, he's he's rich and famous and powerful. So, yeah, that's just going to kind of go away. You know, they're going to leave him to wander around while they... Uh, investigate his apparent faked suicide that he almost certainly had to be uh, involved in in some way. Mm-hmm. We're just not going to ask any questions about that. I ended up with a lot of questions, but I, these kind of movies aren't necessarily designed to be like long-term experiences. They're not necessarily designed to live on. Like Blumhouse movies in particular are about getting butts in seats with gimmicks and then just like, can we pay off the feeling like as long as you're in the theater? And I did find this very effective. Not so much in terms of like jump scares, although there are a lot of jump scares, but in terms of the bigger dread of this man in her life just has all of the power in this situation and can literally do whatever he wants. And no matter what she says, it's not going to come out well. The thing that really impressed me about The Invisible Man is that I often have a problem with paranoia thrillers that more or less rely on the protagonist to say the exact wrong thing to the authorities, leaving out the thing that any sensible person would say. So, you know, you're attacked by a ghost or an alien or whatever, and you don't say... I'm frightened and unnerved because my house blew up. You say it was a ghost. And then they're like, oh, you need to go to an asylum. The thing that I really admired about The Invisible Man was there was no point where I questioned that Elizabeth Moss was, uh, that her character was saying exactly what she would say, exactly what somebody would do, that she was trying her best to hold it all together and then trying to communicate what she knew to people. And the truth was just so plausible that no matter how she phrased it, no matter what she left out, no matter what she put in, nobody could believe her. There was never a point where I felt the story was cheating around what she would say or do under the circumstances. And so much of that just comes down to her performance. Much like Paula in Gaslight, when you see her, she's already pretty vulnerable and like struggling to hold it together just in a very fragile place. And the fact that she disintegrates further from there under pressures that I think would make any of us crack just seems so plausible, but it still relies so much on the actress to bring it off, which I I think she does. I like that opening scene drops you in the deep end already, where she's already in a terrible situation, obviously a very dangerous situation from the way she's behaving. And that slow, quiet escape, the tension of that is really high already. And the movie hasn't even started at that point. It's, it's no. the Quiet Place 1.5. The dog, yeah, kind the of. dog bowl, goodness gracious. Oh, yeah. So that, that, that shock just, I saw it, we saw it in like a Dolby house. And just like right, what, that one <laughs> that one moment was like, oh my God, it just rocks you back in your heels. I would say a couple of things with regard to the Bloom House. Like I, don't, I think there is a certain quick and dirty quality to this as there is with the Bloom House movies. But within that context, 
I was impressed by the stateliness of the filmmaking. This is not a piece of hackery. You know, there are some very well-directed, very patiently directed sequences. So as a work of direction, it impressed me on that level. And then the other level is what we say of Moss. I think there is a psychological realism that she is bringing to this material that goes beyond what we expect from genre, right? This is such a meaty performance. It's so much like what Lupita Nyong'o brought to us last year that kind of gave that film for lack of a better term an elevated quality it's like there's that level of acting that it services the story gives more to this movie almost than it deserves in certain respects it makes it richer and makes it more layered than it would have been otherwise the performance is so critical to the film well that's just it i mean most of the other acting in this film i found very mechanical and workmanlike if not for elizabeth moss if that character was acting on the level that everybody else is would we even be talking about no this that's movie? a good point that's a, i mean the everyone's fine but you're right i mean moss is in another plain completely than the other actors for sure and i would argue that the performance is so good that it makes you willing to excuse like plot particulars that you possibly wouldn't otherwise they found the most effectively sleazy actress they could find to play the griffin brothers so those <laughs> are just just you know you just oh yeah yeah God, that, just, that, yeah i like the brother that not the yeah. husband but the brother tom. that's a good performance michael yeah. dorman is tom is he's tom good griffin. And, I, and the guy who the, the, the guy who interviews her for the architecture job is he was an upgrade as well which mm-hmm. is the Lily Winnell film and uh, I love that actor I don't know who he is but he's so unusual and obviously is a favorite of the director it was kind of cool to see him in one scene in this movie that whole sequence where she's interviewing for the, clearly the first job she's had in quite a while it's very important to her she gets there and she opens up her portfolio and there's nothing there and you just see like the twitching crossing her face oh. I like again it I can only compare it to Gaslight in terms of seeing an actress playing a woman trying to hold it together and just being unable to because what's going on is so bad. It's like a nightmare on top of a nightmare where it's like the dream where you show up in class uh, and you haven't prepared for the test or you're, or you're not wearing any pants or whatever and then you pass out and then they, you know it's revealed that you're on drugs, you know, it just you know it turns the heat up on the boiling pot she's already in uh, quite a bit. I had a problem with this movie, and we're going to go deep into spoilers here in case uh, The Invisible Man matters to you. But to me, one of the big problems with the story of the movie is just I liked the twist where it turned out Tom had been Mm -hmm. in the suit at least some of the time. I thought they were going to go full like Robert Block's uh, Psycho 2, and it would turn out that Adrian had been dead all along. But it was it was clearly we weren't close enough to the end of the story, and we needed one more twist. Like, it was clear something was going to happen. So, like, I thought that was a really cunning place to take it. But then when we find out that Adrian is alive, and she kind of goes back to him... I like I find myself in this threat situation with a character that I'd effectively never seen before, Mm. you know, would never spend any time with his face or his personality. He was a looming threat seen off screen or like seen in sleep. And all of a sudden we were expected to to put all of the tension and fear in this movie on what effectively was a new character. And I found it very hard to feel as connected to that threat as to all of the scenes where you don't see anything and you just feel the threat of something being there. As a man trying to offer her too many options at dinner, he just didn't feel as plausible and real and threatening to me as the invisible threat. Am I alone there? I can see that. 
it didn't really ramp down the tension for me or anything, but I, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, that seems a little strange for sure. Um, but um, And that performance is not as strong as it should yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but I do, but I like the staging of it, though, and I like what Elizabeth Moss brings to that The scene. payoff is great, and, and, and her expression in the final shot is amazing. Yeah, she's good. It is a really good close and I, shot. And I, oh God, and one, I, I have to mention this scene. I think the restaurant scene is probably my favorite in the, in the movie. It's the biggest shock in the movie. And I just, I love the idea of this convention that you see over and over in thrillers like this. That like, let's meet in a crowded public place. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> It's like, but it's the absolutely the worst possible choice because, uh, you know, considering the adversary, it's like, oh, I've just, she's literally in a position where she cannot defend herself. Like, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? You, you, this person you've arrived with has just had her throat slashed and you're holding the knife and you're in the middle of this restaurant. You are, you can say nothing. It's like, it's like the family circus cartoon where it's not me. Not me. Who, who murdered this woman? Hold on. Idea for a horror film. (laughs) I just not like that. Me. I like Dark that twist as a on jo- not me. I like that as a jolt because I, th- and I, I think it shows a little bit of range on Wanell's part as a director because I think you also, in contrast, I mean, that's a shock, but then you also get scenes, and this is not like something we generally see in Blue Mouse films, of him just staying in a room, you know, and Elizabeth Moss is there and the Invisible Man is there somewhere and she senses him and he's kind of messing with her mind. And he, he just explores that space and he does a lot of strange, interesting perspective shifts with the camera. Um, that remind me a little bit of It Follows, you know, where it's just like the camera's doing something unnatural and so you're just, you're unmoored by that. I mean, that's that's real direction. I mean, that's not just, that's not, not horror hackery and that's not just exploiting a good concept that's actually delivering on a, in a big way. It kind of made me confident in his, him as a director. I mean, or at least it made me, it reinforced the confidence I got watching upgrade, which I'd never seen before and saw in advance of this movie and thought it was outstanding. Good movie. Uh, um, and I was like, Whoa, this guy is not just, you, you can kind of write him off as the, as the saw guy, you know, and there's the insidious guy, somebody who's you know, a capable genre writer, but I think he's a real director. Yeah. And it's funny because like, I, I, neither of us were big fans of Saw. No, I, remember, I don't know, Tasha. I don't, I don't know if we had any thoughts uh, on Saw. I, I thought the very ending of Saw was unmitigated raw baloney. Uh-huh. But the 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 lead up to it, in terms of super micro budget films that manage to keep surprising you out of uh, what seems like a very very limited scenario. Mm-hmm. Going back to that first Saw film to me feels like going back to the first Friday the Thirteenth movie and just being incredibly surprised by how stylish it is and how daring it is in a lot of the choices and how it doesn't feel like any of the films that followed. Yeah, I've been thinking about rewatching, but but the larger point though is like at the time I didn't necessarily see two directors whose careers I'd, I'd look whose films I'd start to look forward to coming yeah, certainly. out. Certainly. No. I could see that. Um the other thing about the restaurant scene though, it also has the funniest moment in the movie, which is which really kind of disarms you and sets you up, does not set you up for what's to follow, but the whole like, have you dined with us before? Oh, I know. <laughs> like I never I never understood why restaurants started doing that or why because I don't know anyone who's not annoyed by that question. It's like, I, you know what though? Yeah, that question I don't love. But the thing is restaurants have, it's the restaurant's own fault because it's like restaurants now if you go a fancy restaurants the menus are so complicated mm-hmm. and they have to tell you how much food you need to order because because Yeah, you know, but I'm, I'm I get I encounter that at like you know I don't eat the upscale places that you eat, Scott. I'm talking talking about like the family family feedback places that my family goes to. I don't know. I remember. I remember the first time I went to a a PF Chang's, which is a 
very, very slightly upscale from like mm. your your random corner Chinese joint, uh, Chinese restaurant. And the the waiter who came around kind of doing a, have you been to P.F. Chang's before? Uh-huh. Uh, in order, basically in order to lay out the fact that they were going to put three sauces on the table that were basically hot mustard, sweet and sour sauce, and something else. And we had the option of mixing them. And he wanted us to know if there was a little more mustard, it would be spicier. And if there was a little more sweet and sour, it would be <laughs> sweet. Like he Wait. laid this out like he was explaining like the principles of, of color design to a bunch of first graders. I have a question for you. I don't want to digress too much, but all right. I've eaten P.F. Chang's twice, so it's, it's you know, but um, it's hot mustard, mm-hmm, sweet mm-hmm. and sour. Was the third one? I, I don't remember. It was long enough well, ago. And we were, uh, to be honest, the people I was with, we were laughing so hard yeah. by the time he got to sauce number two, like yeah. explaining to us <laughs> like, really? like we were idiots. I think the third wait, sauce wait, was queso. But, I, would, <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would never mix those tastes. Why would you mix... Why would you mix hot mustard and sweet and sour? It doesn't go together at all, does it? Am I, am oh, it well? actually does. Like uh, one of my one of my all time favorite uh, Chinese places literally just does make a sauce that's okay. just the two mixed together. It's not uncommon. But the point I mean, is, I would trust a professional to mix them, but I wouldn't trust myself to get. The he mix was right. he was trying the PF Chang's guy was trying to like lay out a situation where we could be trusted with these things, mm. uh, and that's what I normally see in those kinds of restaurants that they're like, "Have you been here before?" It's like this is a Mongolian barbecue do you understand that you're going to be going up to that bar over there and getting your own food and then we'll cook it like we we need to lay this out because if you just sit here waiting for us to to bring you a meal you're going to be disappointed this is how things are done in mongolia (laughs) so the thing that i find funniest about that scene is like we know one of the people at the table is losing her mind Mm -hmm. like literally losing her mind the other person at the table is seethingly angry and being viciously condescending to that waiter while using the condescension against the waiter to kind of like diss her sister for bringing her into the situation in the middle of all this though the waiter says just in the most chipper voice imaginable well we do things a little differently here at whatever the name of the restaurant is so that is that is familiar yes it is just it's a sharp little bit of comedy that i don't even know if it belongs in the film but i I laughed pretty hard Mm -hmm. and it's that sequence is so tight that if you laugh at you do things a little differently here you might still be laughing when suddenly you're looking at a woman with her her throat ripped out Mm -hmm. and realizing where all of the rest of that scene's going to go and speaking of which scott you you kind of talked about how uh wanell lets scenes stretch out the way that that scene extends like Mm -hmm. you you know the second you see the line across her throat everything that's going to happen but he still just like lets that sequence breathe as it all sinks in for moss like bit by bit her sister is dead she's going to jail she's probably going to an asylum there is absolutely nothing that she can say that will convince anybody in the world and her sister is dead and you can see those things going through her head in a loop over and over and over faster and faster as that scene plays out and it's a really effective and chilling bit of horror. You're right. It pushes fast forward on the mental deterioration process that's already ongoing. <laughs> it, it, you know, the, it, and uh, yeah, I mean, Moss sells it and the film takes its time. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's a complementary relationship here between Wanell's style and, and Moss as an actress. I think Wanell is committed to giving her the space to, to deliver a performance like that, to do sequences that you can remember. And that's that's something that's kind of exciting about the film. And I think you know you're in good hands, especially with a horror film, 
when you can just isolate certain sequences when they're so vividly staged that you could say, oh, that's the thing that happens in this, you know, like the opening of this movie. You can, you, that is such a beautiful, sustained bit of suspense and it just, it, it stays with you and that's that's a mark of a good filmmaker. I would say though that the direct opposite of that is the sequence in the asylum where she's leaving the asylum. I think we get about four too many security guards running in in twos <laughs> in order to get like get, get killed m- or mutilated. mutilated. Yeah, yeah delivering the goods, I guess, right? That one, that one came kind of around to, to funny to me because it's just, it's like you, you're just sticking quarters in the jukebox yeah. Try a here fresh comes another song. <laughs> Try a fresh approach other than just getting mowed down. Uh, yeah, you know, are we done with this action? Nope, here come two more of them. Nope, they're not any more prepared than anything else. Nope, they're way far away from her, but they're not going to do anything different. Oh, nope, nope, not these two. Are we done with it? No, here come two more. Like, that was my experience with that scene. That That one I thought went on too long. Real briefly before we move into connections, I'm curious about your thoughts about this compared to other Invisible Man stories, because mm. there are there have been so many of them. Oh, Tashi, you came yeah. in the right place. <laughs> yeah. I just watched so many Invisible Man movies for a piece I wrote for for Mel Magazine, and, and they're, the original one, it's great. I mean, fantastic. Scott just watched it, too, I and, and, and so equally impressed. But I also watched The Amazing Transparent Man, which, which <laughs> well, the, the main thing I, I took a main takeaway from is the easiest monster to do when you don't have any money but not necessarily easy to do well. So, uh, yeah, I would not recommend the Amazing Transparent Man. I would not recommend the Invisible Maniac, which is a, which is a like this <laughs> soft core porn film slash slasher film. Everyone involved should probably be in in jail. Um, the Hollow Man. Scott and I've gone back and forth. Yeah, on we, the, I think we were a little disagreeing on that one. On the, yeah. on the, on the Hollow Man. It's, what, I, I wait, like it's who's a, on which side? I feel like it's a Verhoeven movie that just it's a Verhoeven movie, but it doesn't really work. I think it kind of blows up in his face. But uh, Scott liked it better. Yeah, I think it's, I, did, I think but... it's the last third is a kind of a disaster. But I was surprised revisiting it how much of a Verhoeven film it's it is. It's a long third, though. That last, <laughs> third. but it's kind of like an action. It, yeah. it kind of descends into sort of him, him like, okay, I'm going to be a Hollywood action director and deliver the goods here. But like before, then you get a lot of. Verhoeven's ideas about what the scenario would be and what yeah. hum, human nature, what human nature really is. Yeah, be, and, 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 and it gets it right from the beginning of the film when he's just Kevin Bacon's character is figuring out how to make uh, the science work while also staring across to this, uh, you know, the vo- in this very creepy voyeuristic way to the, the woman across the way and, yeah. and sort of surely fantasizing about what it would be like if uh, he wasn't seen. I just think that's a, I think. Verhoeven has such a dark view of human nature, and I think the Invisible Man kind of brings that out. Not, in, I mean, obviously, not the greatest, maybe his worst film or one of his worst films, but mm-hmm. interesting. And it, the, the original Invisible Man is phenomenal. I yeah, think. and the, the Verhoeven loops back around to that one into the Wells novel, but also it turns up in movies where the Invisible Man is kind of the supposed to be the good guy too I, I, the worst thing I saw uh, <laughs> was this film called The Man Who Wasn't There not to be confused with the Coen Brothers movie uh, it's a 3D comedy R-rated comedy starring Steve Gutenberg for 1983 oh, right. <laughs> in which he gets mixed up in some spy shenanigans but it is just so smutty and it's like so like it's really it's saying something kind of profound without realizing it's saying it which is like 
he goes around like sort of like flipping up skirts and walking into locker rooms to, to stare at and, and, and pinching women on the bottom while he's in there. And the female leads like, oh, you, <laughs> you know, oh, you naughty shenanigans you're getting into. Uh, don't do that. You know, and it's like, this is, he's a real creep, you know? I mean, anyway, invisibility makes you creepy is sort of the takeaway. It's a good thesis. Well, that's yeah. what I was going to ask is, I mean, like a an actual theme in these movies is having the kind of power to go anywhere you want, do anything you want, inevitably seems to turn people towards the dark side of humanity. The only character doesn't really touch is the star of uh, the Kurt Russell protagonist of uh, uh, Now You See Him, Now You Don't in the, in the Disney <laughs> oh, film. But, but even that, it's, it's, it quickly, you know, uh, Cesar Romero, who plays the bad guy, uh, quickly latches on to the uh, criminal potential for this uh, uh, talent. Well, it's starting to sound like what we really need in this world is a movie about uh, an invisible person of some variety mm. who finds that invisibility makes them a better person that is not in any way entangled with the Fantastic Four franchise because that's been disastrous for invisible mm women characters in general but uh yeah it, it sounds like we've maybe exhausted that theme and it's time to go in a different direction with it which i guess uh, this invisible man does it, certainly not in the direction of it makes you a better person uh, but at least you do something differently creepy with your invisibility in i believe one. elizabeth banks has signed on to do the invisible woman although i have no idea what kind of film that would that will be other than, <laughs> other than the title well i think the fact that elizabeth banks is involved means it's probably going to go in a slightly different direction than uh, like the standard tropes or cliches. Mm. Let's all hope. In the meantime, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Gaslight and The Invisible Man. You know what I think we need? I think we get kicked out out and have a little girls night, eat some cake. Yeah, I do like cake. Oh my god. Sydney, are you okay? Would you just stop? Stop, Dad! Dad! What? No. No, Sydney, what? I didn't. No, I didn't. What, what happened? What happened? She hit me. What? No, 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 no. James, I did not do that. Sydney, I would never hit you. I love you. I would never do that, James. It was him. He's here. I swear no. to you. Enough. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, so gaslighting, gaslighting. huh? <laughs> How yeah. about that gaslighting? <laughs> yeah, they do. They have gaslighting in common. And uh, it, I mean, it's fun to think about these two next to each other because it just basically, just by its concept alone, the invisible man becomes a horror gaslight. And there's a shot in, I don't know if you all caught it or maybe, I, maybe I'm making it up or something, but there's a shot in The Invisible Man that seemed to be kind of a visual tip of the hat to gaslight, right? I mean, there's, mm. like, there's a shot of a like this exterior sort of lamplight that felt to me very conspicuous and not necessarily a shot that was important on a storytelling level, but, uh, but to kind of tip its hat to gaslight um because i mean truly that film informed this one i mean it's, it was a oh good, yeah absolutely yeah. i mean you could also say that the kitchen scene in invisible man where elizabeth moss character walks away from a, a frying pan on the the oven and suddenly the the fire like comes up really sharply and eventually the pan catches on fire like that yeah. also feels uh, if it's just about like uh, gas stove. fire yeah gas stove like more or less fire like suddenly there's more fire and it's a, a problematic thing and that's your first real 
authentic tip off in the movie that something's arrived. That like he's that's present and that yeah, yeah, exactly. That something's going on. Well, and also this the and of course the the thing is like there's an option here to just attack. And I think in both films you, you have the strategy that's being carried out on the part of the men, of an of the invisible man and of what's Charles Boyer's character's name? Gregory. On the a strategy that's being carried out by the invisible man and by Gregory to manipulate and torment and drive the, the woman crazy. Uh, and in the context of a horror film, is it's just so scary, I mean, to have these inexplicable things happen. I mean, you know, something like the incident with the missing architectural plans that she had brought to her interview, that type of scene is, you know, occurs at a couple of different moments of, of, of gaslight. Right? Oh, yeah, the business with the missing watch and her turning up in her purse, the missing brooch. Yeah, and missing painting. <laughs> it happens all. It happens a lot. And it's just this strategy that's being played out because, you know, at all times, you know, in The Invisible Man, at all times, uh, Adrian has the ability to harm her, mortally harm her. I mean, there's really nothing that she could do i mean obviously they get in some interesting struggles but like you know it's uh you know he chooses instead to try to weaken her psychologically and so we have that experience in this film and and then in gaslight this attempt at psychological manipulation the one difference that i think is fascinating though is that in gaslight he's trying to make her crazy the visible man he's trying to give everyone else the impression that she's crazy although making her crazy is a really good first step in that direction it it, it is but but like it becomes absurd for her to claim the things she's claiming i mean like you know she's no one's there so how could she hold anybody responsible the one thing that i felt uh that i maybe struggled a little bit with in the invisible man versus gaslight one of the things he does in Gaslight is just completely isolate Paula. And it's fairly easy to do. You know, he tells her that she's too fragile for guests. He tells the servants, chase anybody that comes to the house away, tell them, you know, she's sickly, which, you know, in the 1800s, it feels like that as an excuse for women being shut up uh, was a very common thing. Like, uh, you know, her corset's too tight. She's fainting all the time. She could have had the vapors. She might have the vapors. Yeah. She might have female hysterics. Mm. Like, there's just so many reasons for her to, to not ever come out. But in Invisible Man, like, as as unnerving as that restaurant scene is, my one of my first thoughts was, well, they're probably security cameras. And the security cameras would pretty clearly show a knife literally jumping up off that table, cutting somebody's throat, and then suddenly jumping into Elizabeth Moss's hand. The, the horror the, logic, though, you know, you the big kind of uh, saving grace for me during the asylum scene was, well, all right, now everybody has evidence of this uh, person like flickering in and out of existence, of weapons like literally floating through the air and shooting people. Like this is, there's no way this isn't all on video. So I found that maybe the reason I found that sequence like a little too long was because it was a relief in a way. It was it was proof of everything she'd been saying. And I didn't need for like 20 people to die <laughs> as evidence for that. Like the first couple of people being like clubbed into submission was fine. Point being... In Gaslight, it's a lot easier to isolate somebody and give them just no recourse in terms of other witnesses to help verify what they're saying. In Invisible Man, it seems like in a surveillance society, it would be a lot harder to do that. One thing I like, appreciate about both films, too, is the fact that we do get some time of the 
women being um, in a state of isolation in a new place before anything happens. I mean, you know, Invisible Man, you know, I mean, obviously with uh, Paula and Gaslight, she's moving back into this house of horrors, you know, of, of so, where something, uh, where she went through this terrible trauma and she's returning to that place. But Invisible Man, she is fleeing domestic violence and, and, and also believing firmly that he's going to find her somehow and she can't even step out of the house and 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 i like that that both films take time to establish that situation before that becomes a, a bigger factor one of the things that interests me here about the gaslighting is there is a a micro genre of films where someone usually it's a woman i call it the who's crazy here uh film and i'm thinking about things like uh bunny lake is missing or flight pan plan which was directly derived from it to some degree the lady vanishes but there's different iterations of them one of them is the one where you literally don't know who's crazy and uh, bunny lake is missing remains a real favorite of mine because it does take that angle of the woman at the center has a version of reality that she's espousing and there's no proof for it. And the audience has to wonder, like, is she making these things up? Like, there's there's evidence that suggests that everything she's saying is untrue. Both Gaslight and The Invisible Man don't take that angle. Like, there's never really a point where you're like, is he there or isn't he? Is she crazy or isn't she? Is Gregory lying to her, isn't he? There's a sense of really heavy malice that comes into both of these films because you know pretty much from the beginning that your protagonist is not crazy and is being pushed to these points by things that other people don't see and understand. It kind of makes me want to see the art house version of this where that ambiguity is never resolved, where it's just someone who's just, you never know at the end. Like, like, like kind of like, you know, George Romero's Martin, where you can watch that <laughs> sure. and, and, and it's not clear if, if, if he's a vampire or not. Or, or, vampire, a... or Vampire's Kiss, which I watched recently for some reason. <laughs> oh, I wonder why. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen Repulsion, but I, I also remember some of that ambiguity there just in terms of like some of this is, is very clearly in her head, but you're you're kind of left to explore like how much of it is the terribleness of the world mm. and how much of it was just in her mind all along. Where is it coming from? Pla- so. Polanski made very good movies about how women were vulnerable and could be exploited. Yeah, it's a pity. And if we got into that, we'd be here all day. Yeah. And we're already talking about vulnerable women being exploited. I think it is also interesting the degree to which Gaslight is about a man convincing a woman that she's nuts and Invisible Man is about a man convincing everybody that a woman is nuts <laughs> yes. simply by doing things, like doing fairly simple things. Yeah. Um, putting a bottle of pills in a place where a bottle of pills was not previously. Like, it is very, very difficult to say, I found a bottle of pills in my house that belongs to me without sounding like you're crazy. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of like that common thing that we're, we're, you know, you talk about with your friends as a kid or something where it's like, wouldn't it be cool if we just like snuck into somebody's house and just move furniture around just to fuck with their minds? You know, it's like. You do know enjoy doing that. Who's that? Charles Manson. Oh, was that Charles Manson? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, really? Pretty, pretty, uh, like, well, I forget what he called it. It was like, uh, but uh, yeah. It was that kind of deal? Yeah, yeah. He was thinking of people. He would 
his people would sneak into people's oh, so houses. Oh, this is not this is not so some child. No, no, no. This is an actual no, it really, thing. Really happened. I'll be damned. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I actually can't uh, not to dwell on the Polanski of it all, but but uh, Rosemary's Baby fits this pattern as well, where she's basically being gaslighted for most of that movie. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, just like that, all it takes is just a reordering of things of just of strange occurrences. It also and also in both films, both Gaslight and Invisible Man, things that maybe. You got wrong. Like, like, there's enough with Paul and Cecilia where they can kind of start to question themselves. Like, the manipulation is just enough to be like, did I put those plans in there? Like, I'm almost certain I did, but it's absurd to think otherwise, right? Um, and uh, and with Paula, it's the same thing with these little gaps in her knowledge and and uh, things that other people are saying that she did, and so maybe she did, you know. And and uh, it's subtle, but. Um, but those little things, they kind of chip, chip, chip away at you. I feel like there's in both the the case of the missing portfolio and the case of the missing brooch in particular, there is kind of a still trying to hold on to reality uh, moment for both of those characters. Where for Cecilia, I think the second she opens the portfolio and it's not there, I don't necessarily think she doubts herself. I think she realizes that like the man who's been messing with her life has clearly taken the plans. What I see in that moment, uh, like on Elizabeth Moss's face, is her struggling with how do I present this in a way that doesn't make me look deranged? You know, there's there's no way to say my jealous ex is in my house stealing my stuff without sounding like yeah. at least a little off. Yeah. But with Paula, like that moment where she she's climbing the stairs, like she she notices that the brooch is missing from her purse and then she edges away from her husband and from the group. I think it's really telling that that moment where she's exploring this thing that she thinks she's lost uh, just after telling her husband that like, no, she's not forgetting things and losing things. All of that takes place in a literal torture chamber mm. with this background conversation going on about the rack and pretty, pretty, pretty graphic and grim conversation. Yeah, as well. it's, I, I, that, I've been to the tower of London. I don't think that part of the tour is still there. <laughs> it was very macabre. The, certainly uh, you get the impression that the, the docent there is really enjoying. That dude loves jewels too. Je- <laughs> Nobody likes gems quite like that guy. But uh, yeah, the fact that it's taking place in a, a torture chamber, I think is, is pretty beautiful, but there's, also definitely a degree to which she's trying to hold it together she doesn't necessarily know where she whether she lost it or not she's trying to believe that she didn't and she's trying to hide it from her husband because she already knows what's coming it doesn't matter at that point whether it's the violent outburst or the gentle supportive condescension like either way she wants to pretend for just a minute longer if at all possible that it didn't happen and that moment where she's climbing the stairs and she's almost gotten away from him and in the background at the bottom of the stairs he's like oh well, where where's your brooch just feels like a heavy load falling on her there are uh, other things that we could talk about. One of the things, this again, this is almost a small parallel, but it's such a telling parallel. I brought up earlier the whole idea of uh, let's just hide all of your past in the attic and never think about it again. Mm-hmm. I think it is interesting that in Invisible Man, like all of the secrets are also in the attic. That feels almost like an intentional homage, or at least like this is something we can take from this uh, that would work for us as well, uh, too. Um, scary stuff, too. It's, it's, it's dark, that attic. It is dark in that attic. There's sort of the mystery of the knife in the bag and why he would leave his phone in the house mm-hmm. with uh, the ringer turned on. Like, it's clearly all a trap. And it's almost like in that 
as she's exploring it, she she realizes it's a trap. She just can't figure out what flavor of trap it is. There's also the fact that when she realizes it's up there in the first place, she just goes like full aliens and like I'm pretty sure that the monsters are up here. I'm just going to stick my head up here and see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's so metaphorically effective because I think the attic, if you think about it, is such a symbol of compartmentalization of a place that you uh, tuck things away and don't and forget about them. Uh, And uh, or, you know, or something like, you know, um, or a place of of madness too of of you know you talk about the mad woman in the attic mm-hmm. i mean that's uh that plays into it as well it, it becomes uh the attic becomes a, kind of a psychic space you know i mean it, you know and even in the even in, in the if you think about where it is in a house it, you know it's where your head is at you know it's at the top it's at the top of the house it's where you're that's where you know and uh so it's it's in the top of your head and that's where everything that's where all the secrets are 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 tucked away and they're not accessible and, and literally not accessible in gaslight uh, in the sense that like he has to go outside and through a <laughs> get all dirty and go through a skylight and pass between homes to get there and even in of course invisible man she has to use that ladder i mean that's not that's certainly not easy for her to get there i think leonel was definitely uh watching gaslight once or twice before making the invisible man which is fascinating because gaslight's not a horror film but, but the idea is compelling and i think the two link up so nicely yeah absolutely we had a bunch more um connections to talk about but i think and we've hit them in the process um talking about the how central those performances are and how neither of these stories really necessarily work without the strength and like the combination of strength and fragility in both of those performances the way both films use atmosphere and and build tension and build fear scott you had brought up just the use of space in both films as kind of a last thing you wanted to talk about yeah i mean i think that i mean we got into a lot when we talked about gaslight and the necessity to make it not like a staged play and to give that space a sense of um, its own life of, of being a, a suffocating place of a haunted place. You know, a lot of this, the lighting and the production design and, and here in with invisible man, it's opened up a little bit more. Uh, you have different locations, a few more locations, but you also have an unusual amount of patience on the part of the director, Lee Wanell to, explore the spaces that he does have and to make the most of it and to really, you know, look at, into the corners and try different angles and, and make the space of the house itself be part of the menace of the movie. It's such a cheap trick in Invisible Man. Here's an empty doorway. There's probably something in that doorway you can't see. It's yeah. such a low-budget trick. It works so well. It does. Yeah, it does. To and some I, degree, it, it works better than the high-tech image of somebody flashing in and out of reality. Just that sense of... It's like the shot in Halloween where Michael Myers is standing there with a sheet over his head. Mm-hmm. It could not be more low-tech, and it's really, really creepy. I liked also that it was a realistically middle-class house, too. The, the, you know, kind of clutter, and things are half-finished as he's, as he, you know, sort of this constant um, you know home improvement project that he's working on between his jobs and and uh, you know she has to share a bed with with uh, with the kid and and uh, yeah, it, yeah it, it, it that was, was the, all those details were great yeah they? for yeah. sure and it's really necessary to put some sort 
sort of mannequin at the foot of the bed with a hat on it, a coat on it. It's explained, explained in context. Yeah, that's right. She's a, she, the daughter is into fashion. Yeah. Wants to, wants to go to Parsons. Yeah. You know, I don't care how explained it is. Uh, if you've got somebody uh, emotionally fragile in the house, you don't put a, a menacing human figure at the foot of their bed in the middle of the night. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well... Gaslight is widely available on streaming services. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray. And I am not gaslighting you here. This is true. New VHS from Amazon. Uh, The Invisible Man is in wide release in theaters right now. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I, I've been watching a lot of films lately. It's my, <laughs> as I've <laughs> talked about, this is my new, my new Year's resolution was to watch more films, um, as if I don't see enough already. But I, but um, one of the things that, that, that has helped me do that are, are new projects, and one project I have now is for the New York Times uh, watching newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed to that, please do. On every Friday now, I'm going to be writing a double feature, a little, you know, like 250 words on a double feature, basically. And uh, with one of the double feature movies being something that you can, that's available on streaming services or new films that are for rental and, uh, or films that are leaving, leaving their services. And, and, uh, and so my first, my inaugural double feature uh, were, the last two Jonathan Demi films, which are Rachel Getting Married and Ricky and the Flash. We've talked about Ricky and the Flash all the time on this podcast and how much we enjoy that one, but I feel it's underrated. But I wanted to give a shout out to Rachel Getting Married from 2008. I hadn't seen it since it came out. It was my number one film that year. And I'd wondered if it was going to play for me as well this time. And it just bowled me over. And there's something, and watching that film gave me such a, it it reinforces just how special Jonathan Demi was as a, filmmaker is somebody who is so engaged in the human experience and all of its you know joy and and, and sadness and tragedy and in warmth and uh it's just in, you know and of course the film is about Anne Hathaway as uh someone who has been in and out of rehab and she's just getting out of rehab to go to her sister's wedding in their Connecticut home uh there's a terrible family tragedy in the middle of her story and it's sort of like the the elephant in the room throughout the movie and it kind of comes into focus later and is is very upsetting but the film is also about a wedding and uh and demi fills you know could have had a second career as a wedding planner it's it's full of musical performances and it's got you know my robin hitchcock you know the the husband to be is is the lead singer from tv on the radio and it's just there's a joy to this film and a sadness and, and, and just a, a, a bursting humanity to it that just it knocked me out and, it, and almost like i don't know we, we didn't deserve jonathan demi is <laughs> <laughs> basically the other my, my point here it's so demi too and it, and it came along after he did beloved it which you know it had it was was a mixed bag and and, and uh, um he did truth about charlie which which has some delightful things in it but doesn't really work and then then here it's just a 
full throated everything uh, Jonathan Demi clicks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like in the air too because the, the Black Check podcast is doing a Demi series and just did a Rachel getting married. Yeah, episode. yeah. People were wondering um, when I when I saw whether I was seeing it because yeah. of the because of the Blank Check podcast and it was just a coincidence. But uh, yeah. I think that's a film worth revisiting. Unfortunately, you can't revisit it on Netflix anymore because it was leaving the service. <laughs> but it is out there and to be enjoyed. You know, what stands out for me more than anything about Rachel getting married is just how tightly and well it draws the conundrum of once you've broken trust with people, you can potentially be in a place where there are no good moves. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a lot of movies about like people coming back from addiction, like people coming back from rehab, people struggling to reestablish connection with their families after breaking down due to mental illness or, or some other sort of, you know, like anorexia into the bone or like various other kinds of uh, emotional or mental illnesses. The feeling of there is no right move. Uh, is really strong in a lot of yeah. stories like this. And it's so strong in Rachel getting married. The feeling that she's under constant surveillance from her family. And if she acts out, they'll say, we told you so. And if she's quiet and withdrawn, they'll say, we told you so. And if she leaves the wedding, if she stays for the wedding, no matter what she does, it's the wrong choice. And that is a conundrum I certainly don't enjoy in real life, but that I think is very interesting to explore in a cinematic space like this. Just what it feels like to feel like you have no options, no matter how well you behave, there's going to be somebody that's going to judge you for it. I, I think it's really well drawn on a character level that way. Yeah. And, and there's in the thing, the tragedies are at the center of it is one of those things where how do you come back from that? How do you ask for forgiveness? How can you, how do you forgive yourself? You know, how, how is that not going to affect your psychological well-being and your relationship with anybody who's close to you? And it's it's uh, heartbreaking. But the film is not entirely heartbreaking. There's something that's also very warm and, uh, and cheering as well. So it's just such a full experience. It's such a perfect Jonathan Demi movie. So you know great worth revisiting. Movie? You knew who's great in that movie? Everybody, but also Bill Irwin. <laughs> Bill Irwin. Yeah, Bill Irwin. So oh, his breakdown, his yeah. emotional breakdown. I know, is that's killer. the one he's Absolutely really killer. of. But yeah. Tasha, what about you? Well, at the point where this podcast drops, we will be uh, three days off from the release of a movie called The Platform on Netflix. And I can't remember if I've talked about The Platform on this platform uh, that we're talking on right <laughs> now, because I came back from TIFF uh, last year so high on this movie. I was recommending it to everybody I talked to. And yeah. then I went off to Fantastic Fest at, like two weeks later, and I watched it again because I was so taken with it. It's... A first time, like a, a debut feature from a director named Galder Gatsteru Uratia. That's really hard to really hard to pronounce. Um, and I have probably just mangled it. Spanish director, Spanish language film, subtitled. It's a science fiction dystopia film that will probably remind people a lot of Vincento Natiali um, and movies like Cube and Haunter. It takes place pretty much. Uh, entirely in a vertical prison uh, with where every cell is just like an open space with the same giant rectangular hole in the middle. And once a day, every day, a table uh, covered with a sumptuous feast descends down through all of the levels. And you're stuck with whatever's left um, by the time the the table gets down to your level. If you're on the first level, you get a sumptuous feast. If you're on the 12th level, you get a kind of picked over feast. If you're on the 50th level, there might not be any food. 
the whole film is very clearly a metaphor about inequity, um, about the 1%, about the, the responsibility of wealth, about how the world has enough resources for everybody if they were distributed equally, but we don't. And as a result, people suffer and starve to death. But it's also just a, a, a crackerjack, like, exploration and discovery film. Every single scene and, and moment and line is built towards building up the tension or puncturing it with humor. And it, it zigzags back and forth such that you never know what you're going to get. It's full of Scott Tobias's favorite thing, intense, intense violence. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's also in places just laugh out loud funny without being a, the kind of like like over the top silly comedy gore fest that's so common in horror comedy i just i love the way this story is told i love the way the story unfolds i love how you have to discover it you start in media res and you have to discover the rules of the place by being there <laughs> yeah. you have to discover everything about the character one piece at a time and every time you know where you are and what's going on the story changes i just i love the platform to death and I'm so excited. It's coming to Netflix on the 20th, and everybody else is going to be able to see it. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about it, too. I mean, you may have mentioned it before, but I, I was writing it up for uh, this column I do for Netflix on Netflix Canada. I make money all kinds of crazy ways. Um, <laughs> and uh, but, but it was just like, that premise is like, whoa, I have to see this. This is like the craziest thing I've ever read. So I'm excited about it. Um, that sounds cool. It's an amazing film. I love it to pieces. I, again, I can't wait. One of the best things about this job is sometimes you get to see things before other people do, and then you get to run around like waving your little flag, yelling, everybody should see this movie. I am so excited for everybody to yeah. see the platform. Keith, what has been good for you lately? I will take a page from Scott Tobias's book and, and promote something I've written uh, via a recommendation. But I do um, occasional like sort of deep dive into to sort of off-canon horror films uh, for Fangoria. And this is one I just kind of stumbled across while looking up something else on my favorite website, newspapers.com. I saw, I saw uh, an ad for a movie called Night Warning. I feel like I've never heard of it, Night Warning. Uh, and I looked it up and it was a, has a movie with a kind of strange history. It began life as, and it's better known as now, as, as Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, uh, at least in 1981. Uh, and it is a strange pedigree. It's directed by... William Asher, who's best known for TV, uh, including many, many episodes of Bewitched. He was Elizabeth, he was Elizabeth Montgomery's husband for, for a long time. And it is uh, co-written by Stephen Brimer and, and Alan J. Gluckman and Boone Collins. Not, not necessarily names you'd know, but, but uh, Brimer, was, it was his first screenplay, and he is gay, uh, which factors into it. Uh, he wanted to make this kind of like update of like whatever happened to baby Jane psycho like sort of creepy old old uh, creepy well not the protagonist is even that old but creepy women going crazy and and wrecking people's lives and in that case it's the character is played by uh, Susan Tyrell who as you might imagine if you know who Susan Tyrell is is very good as a as a psycho lady uh she is the aunt raising um uh, a teenager named uh, Billy, played by Jimmy McNichol, is Christy McNichol's uh, less famous brother. And the, you know, the plot gets kind of complicated, but uh, she kills somebody and he's in sort of like enlists him in covering it up to claim it was an accident when actually she uh, is quite uh, off her rocker, which this leads, to, this leads suspicion to fall on, on Billy. Uh, and it falls under, he's being pursued relentlessly by uh, the police detective played by Bo Svensson, Svensson uh, who was sort of a 70s. He was, I mean, 
He was the guy who took over for Joe Don Baker in the Walking Tall sequels. He's turned up in some Quentin Tarantino movies. He's like a big hulking guy. And he's also in this movie, a, a huge homophobe, uh, which plays into the fact that Billy's um, uh, basketball coach is gay. And the movie treats it as no big deal. Like he's, I mean, the homophobia is real, but, but uh, you know, he just, he's just a guy, you know, and it's kind of really groundbreaking that way as well. And the real bad guy, in addition to Susan Tyrell, who's, who's crazy, uh, is the detective played by Bo Sensen. And it's kind of interesting to see two different uh, antagonists, but it is a very creepy movie, very claustrophobic movie. It's filmed on like real houses, you know, real locations. You know, it's one of those movies where the low budget becomes kind of a, kind of a plus, you know, um, but it also opens with this amazing sequence, which is directed by another director and uh, shot by Jan de Bont, uh, this incredible car accident on the middle of a, of a twisty road. I won't even spoil for you because it's so shocking, but I don't know. It's, it's the problem is I'm, I'm talking about this movie that I really like and I really enjoy and it's really impossible to track down. Oh, man. It, is, it is on Blu-ray. Um, it's kind of hard to find except on Amazon has it marked up ridiculously. Uh, I'm going to plug a website I like called diabolicdvd.com, uh, which has a lot of obscure titles and sort of things you won't find anywhere else. And it has it for a reasonable price. So, you know, not to advertise for them, but if you are curious about this film, that is pretty much the best way to track it down. Diabolic um, spelled like, diabolic like the word? Diabolic with a K. Uh-huh. D-I-A-B-O. <laughs> they should pay me. <laughs> Diabolicdvd.com. Anyway, just go. Uh, you'll find I mean, it. I wouldn't... I don't think there's some corporate monster. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't it's, think I think so. it's okay to throw, I so okay to throw business their way. I think my monthly order might probably helps keep them afloat. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's that's all. And that's called uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, a.k.a. Uh, night warning. Boy, it's not going to be hard to remember that title. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I, as with so many other things, I wish it was more accessible. But uh, thank you for the recommendations. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out March 10th and March 17th. Scott, what is coming up next? The outbreak of the coronavirus has rapidly transformed life in this country, and it's affecting our humble podcast, too. We had intended to do a pair of episodes around the new Kelly Reichert film, First Cow, but with many of our listeners bunkering down at home, we've decided to shift gears and focus on movies you can watch in your living room. To that end, we're going to address this crisis head-on with a couple of movies about viral outbreaks. First, we'll look at Elia Kazan's 1950 film noir, Panic in the Streets, about a waterfront homicide in New Orleans in which the victim is a carrier of the pneumonic plague, which sets off a race against time to prevent mass exposure. Then we'll bring in Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, an uncanny cautionary tale about what might happen if a pandemic broke out. Soderbergh's film has recently experienced a huge surge on streaming sites, so we're not the only ones eager to revisit it. Future pairings might not be this closely tied to the news, but for the next two weeks, we'll use the movies to talk about the elephant in the room. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Gaslight, The Invisible Man, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? 
Oh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter as KFIP3000. You can find me at places like Vulture. Uh, you can find me at Polygon occasionally. You can find me at the, the uh, you know, I do recommendations for Rolling Stone or write for Fangoria. I write for Mel Magazine. I write for The Ringer. I'm, I'm all over the place. Scott, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find me at work the New York Times, uh, The Ringer, Vulture, NPR, other fine uh, places. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Uh, Tasha, how about you? You can find me at Polygon.com, where I am the film and TV editor and very occasional writer. I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And our absent producer, Genevieve Kosky, you can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, or you can go find her over at Vulture. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners we celebrated like maniacs when we got to our hundredth review you could be part of helping make us into maniacs every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going thanks to dan the snake jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts please tune in next time did the cat just learn how to fly no i'm only holding him Cat, turn on the dishwasher. No, I'm holding his paw, pushing down on the switch, making it look like he's doing it by himself. Cause I'm invisible, I am invisible.